Class is in session. You're listening to Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshake. Let's go! Now, let's start the show. Podcast listeners, thank you so much for checking out today's show. This is episode 71 of the Squat University podcast. The goal with each and every one of these shows is to bring you as much value-packed content to help you move better in the gym and in life, decrease your body's aches and pains, and help you reach your true athletic potential. Now, this episode of the podcast is brought to you by my very first sponsor, Gainsbox. Now, Gainsbox is a box of the month club, but it's specifically designed for those who are interested in all things weight training. So if you're a weightlifter, a powerlifter, a crossfitter, or you just love going to the gym and lifting some big weight, this box was designed for you and your interests. Every month, they send out a new box directly to your doorstep with a different mix of things like workout apparel of shirts or shorts, different supplements, training gear, or equipment. The last box I got included some Fit Aid drinks, which I really loved, and some protein uh, chips, which actually were really, really good, along with some other gear. Now, if you go onto their website, I've collaborated with thegainsbox.com to use the code SQUATUNIVERSITY, all one word, not two, and you'll receive a special bonus box valued at $70. So again, the code is SQUATUNIVERSITY, all one word, and that's in the uh, actual code when you check out at thegainsbox.com. So without further ado, let's get into today's podcast. The topic of today's show is all about shoulder pain. We're going to talk in-depth about anatomy, the mechanics of the joint, and how one can find pain, because that's obviously something that so many of us deal with. Now, let's start off with just an overview. The shoulder joint is the most dynamic joint in the entire body. Every time you pick up a barbell from the ground or drive one overhead, a complex network of muscles, ligaments, and bones must work perfectly in sync with each other to keep the joint safe. In order for a shoulder to remain healthy, it must have sufficient mobility to move into a wide range of positions. So think about a weightlifter or a crossfitter doing a snatch or a jerk, but it also has to be stable enough to maintain position. So we have to have both mobility and stability. Now, in all my years as a physical therapist working with athletes, the shoulder continues to be the most frequently injured joint in the entire body. And if you look at the research, like I do, and I know a lot of my nerds out there are doing the same thing, you'll find that the shoulder joint is the most injured joint for those who lift weights competitively and recreationally. So if you're listening to this podcast, chances are you've probably had some shoulder issues in the past. If not, this will be helpful for you in the future just to understand the joint. So what I want to do today is briefly go over the anatomy of the shoulder and also briefly go over some of the most common shoulder injuries that I've seen occur in the weight room. So let's talk about first shoulder anatomy. Now your shoulder joint is considered a ball and socket joint, and it's made up of three bones. There's the humerus, the scapula, and the clavicle, which is your collarbone. Now the end of the humerus, which is your upper arm bone, is shaped like a small ball, and it fits into the socket of the scapula, which is your shoulder blade. And if you've seen any of my work on Instagram, you've probably got a really good picture of this because while the hip joint is a really deep ball and socket joint, the socket of the shoulder blade is very shallow. So a lot of people will use the analogy that it is a ball and socket joint, almost like a golf ball sitting on a golf tee. You've probably seen some of those videos that I've made on Instagram showing the ball and socket being a golf ball sitting on a golf tee. Now, the ball, the humerus, is held in place on the tee 
of the socket called your glenoid by a number of very small but very important tissues like ligaments and capsules in the labrum, things we'll talk about here in a little bit. These tissues wrap around the joint like a tight-fitting glove and form an airtight hold on the joint. The funny thing about how there's like actually an airtight holder on the joint, what I've seen in surgery before is when a surgeon will actually cut through sort of that capsule to get into the joint, sometimes you'll almost hear like a pop, you'll hear that air pressure give way. So that's one sort of interesting thing that whenever someone has like a, a tear or anything in the capsule or labrum, instantaneously the joint will lose its stability a little bit. So that is talking about sort of the things that surround the actual bones. Right over the top of those is your rotator cuff muscles. And it is rotator cuff, not rotary cup. Like I've heard some of my patients come in and say, rotator cuff. And it's four small muscles that make up the rotator cuff. And what they do is they run from the shoulder blade and they attach on the humerus, the arm bone. And because they lie so close to the joint, their job is to compress the ball into the socket as the arm moves. And therefore, they're considered primary stabilizers. So remember that name because we'll go back to it in a second. On top of that, the bigger muscles that you can see are going to be your lats, your pecs, your deltoids. These are the big muscles that are referred to as prime movers. And the reason for that is because they actually move everything. So now that we have those definitions out of the way and you understand the prime stabilizers and the prime movers, let's talk a little bit more specifically about how they work together whenever you're trying to do a lift, whenever you're trying to do a jerk, a snatch, you know, a press overhead. Let's talk specifically about how those two interact. Now to understand how the rotator cuff and the prime movers work together to move the shoulder blade, which is also called your scapula, and your humerus, your arm bone, imagine a young boy helping his father set up a tall ladder. Now the boy is going to kneel at the base of the ladder, firmly securing it to the ground, and the father is going to push the ladder upwards, leaning it against the side of their house. Okay. Now this illustration is precisely what happens when your shoulder moves up to, let's say, put your arm over your head like you're driving a barbell overhead for a jerk. And here's how each part actually plays out. The father is synonymous to the prime mover. So your deltoids, your lats, your pecs, the big muscles people think about training. The small boy is the prime stabilizers. And remember, prime stabilizers are your rotator cuff muscles. Now the ladder is synonymous to your humerus bone and the ground is the scapula socket, okay? So the boy is actually attaching the uh, ladder to the ground, okay? So think about it like this. The young boy rotator cuff muscles works to keep the ladder, your humerus, in a stable position on the ground while the father, your strong, powerful lats, deltoid, and pec muscles focus on moving the ladder into the correct position. Now the action of one holding the base of the ladder in place while the other one moves the ladder is a great example of how dynamic stability is created and maintained during movement. Without sufficient stability, we risk injuries like rotator cuff tendonitis or a rotator cuff tear, a labrum tear, a shoulder instability injury, an impingement, just to name a few. But all of these happen and they occur when these different dynamic ideas and concepts aren't actually carried out correctly. So simple enough, right? We just need the boy to hold things in place while the dad moves the ladder. Not so much. Unfortunately, the shoulder complex is a little bit more complicated than that. 
Not only do we need to understand the mechanics of the shoulder joint itself, but we also need to take into account how the shoulder blade is moving. Okay, so not just the rotator cuff and uh, moving the ladder or the arm, but we also have to take into account the shoulder blade. See, as you move your arm over your head, your shoulder blade moves as well in order to maintain contact with the humerus bone. So if we return to that prior analogy, think about what would happen if that father decided to grab the ladder and then move it to a different part of the house. The ladder would obviously topple over if the boy didn't then get up from that kneeling position and move the ladder to secure it back down to the ground. So just as the boy moves to keep the base of the ladder connected to the ground, we must also move the shoulder blade to accommodate for the continued changing position of our arm bone. Now this action comes from a number of different muscles that connect to the shoulder blade. This is going to be like your rhomboids, your traps, your teres major, your serratus anterior, a number of different muscles that I've shown on Instagram and different YouTube videos. Let's talk about those today. In order for the shoulder blade to move as it should, we should also take into account one more important piece of the puzzle, the thoracic spine or your mid-back. Now, because the shoulder blade is basically floating on top of the spine, the shape of the mid-back can directly dictate the efficiency, or lack thereof, of its movement. In order for the shoulder blade to move correctly and to be in the right place at the right time to provide stability for the arm, it has to easily glide on the upper back. And this requires a certain amount of thoracic spine extension. You see, the architecture of your mid-back is naturally stiff and stable. It has to be because many of the ribs that connect to it provide uh, sufficient protection for our vital organs that lie close by. But unfortunately, the poor postures that many of us assume throughout the day have led to this adaption um, in more of a stiff, kyphotic, or rounded upper back. I mean, just take a look at different people throughout your day when you come in contact with them or at the gym. How many people have that sort of rounded upper back? It's stiff. It's not upright most of the time. When the upper back is rounded and unable to fully extend, the shoulder blade is going to be limited in how much it can then move. So an immobile shoulder blade then affects the mechanics and stability of the shoulder joint itself. So as you can see, there's many factors behind safe and efficient movement of the shoulder. It's not just one small joint. There's so many other things that come into place. You have to understand the whole thing. So let's wrap up this whole, whole section right here. Here's the basics of the shoulder complex that you need to remember. If you're listening to this and you're taking notes, get the pad and paper out, write this down. If the shoulder blade moves as it should on top of a mobile thoracic spine, the rotator cuff muscles are able to do their job and maintain sufficient stability of the joint. The arm is then moved by the big, large prime movers of the upper body. So basically, if every part of the symphony orchestra is playing their part correctly, the ball stays in the center of the golf tee and injury is averted. So there's a lot going on there. Just like a symphony orchestra playing... Every single instrument has its part to play for this sound to be of good quality. So to the question of what causes shoulder pain, the simplest answer is that pain is often the result of excessive stress or strain placed on small structures of the shoulder joint. And this is 
often because of that normal harmonious shoulder complex moving, something is, is being derailed. One part is malfunctioning. The tuba player's off playing his own thing. The violinist is off playing their own thing. They're not working in perfect harmony. This is how uh, maybe like stiff thoracic spine could affect all the way up the shoulder joint and be the reason behind your pain. Now, for most of my strength athletes, my powerlifters, weightlifters, crossfitters, the forces that accumulate at the shoulder result in micro trauma. It's not often that you're going to see this huge injury that happens all at once at the shoulder joint. Usually it's like slowly building over time. And there's usually three factors that add up to creating injury at the shoulder. You're going to see imbalances between the prime movers and prime stabilizers. Now, remember, these are also definitions that we just went over. You could have instability, or you could just have flat out poor lifting technique. Now, the specific injury that occurs like rotated cuff tear, uh, labrum tear, a subluxation. It's going to depend on how that control and balance is lost, how that harmony is thrown off. So what I want to do right now is go through each one of those categories. I want to go over imbalances. I want to go over instability, and I want to go over poor movement and how problems in each one of those different categories can add up to eventual injury at the joint. Okay, so let's start off with imbalances and instabilities. Now, in order for the shoulder to work correctly, like we've talked about, these small stabilizers, prime stabilizers, your rotator cuff, not your rotary cuff, rotator cuff muscles, must work in balance with the larger prime movers, like your deltoid. Now, if these forces are not properly balanced between these two, the stability of the joint decreases and the mechanics of the entire shoulder is thrown off. Remember the dad and the boy analogy? If they're not balanced, that ladder's just moving all over. It's not stable. Now, a common injury that occurs due to imbalances is going to be an impingement. Now, this is a little bit of a vague term, but let's see if we can simplify it a little bit more. Research has shown that there's generally two kinds of impingement. There's external and internal. Now, we'll get a little bit more detailed into the differences between the two in future podcasts, but the big thing is that impingements are pinching of different structures. There's a number of different areas inside the shoulder joint where different structures and tissues can be pinched together. It's an impingement, and it can be due to a few things, and this is why an impingement diagnosis is very vague, because why is the impingement occurring? It could be due to a few different things. And if you don't understand the why behind it, your treatment of it is never going to be sufficient because you could have 100 people lined up and all of them have the diagnosis from a doctor of shoulder impingement. And they could all have very different causes behind why that shoulder impingement is happening. So here are a couple of the different reasons. You could have a strength imbalance. You could have a mobility restriction. You could have a coordination problem between the shoulder blade and the humerus, or you could have instability. So you can have basically four different causes could create an impingement. Now, these are considered secondary impingement. Primary impingements usually where there's an actual anatomical reason for the impingement. So if you have studied anatomy, um, you'll notice that certain parts of the shoulder joint could actually be overgrown bony-wise, and that could be creating an actual anatomical smashing of different structures. I'm specifically talking in this about secondary impingement, which is where it's something that we can fix without surgery often. 
Now, let's talk about all these. A muscle strength and balance is one of the most common reasons for an impingement. You see, if the rotator cuff is not firing correctly or it's just plain weak, the stronger muscles, the prime movers that surround the shoulder, will overpower the prime stabilizers, the rotator cuff. Now, if we go back to that ladder analogy, the small boy, rotator cuff, must stabilize the base of the ladder in order for the father, the prime mover, to push the ladder up and secure it in place. Now, if the base of the ladder is unsecured, the boy's not doing its job, the ladder's going to wobble around and eventually it could consequently fall to the ground because the father is having a very difficult time moving it to the right height. Now, although the rotator cuff muscles are small in nature, they have a very big job. Okay, so that's the first one, muscle strength and balance. That could be the first reason for an impingement injury. The second one, mobility restrictions. They can also create impingements. Some common restrictions could include stiff lats or stiff pecs, stiff thoracic spine. There's a number of different reasons. It's not all the same. Either one of these restrictions can negatively impact scapula or humerus movement. You see, when athletes have mobility restrictions, this can negatively affect overhead barbell lifts. Um, and here's an example. In order to maintain proper body alignment, um, let's say for a deadlift or a pull, you're going to have to activate your big, powerful lat muscles. Now, what are the lats? There's those big V-shaped muscles in the backside of your body. If you've ever seen a, a big power lifter that's pretty shredded or a, let's just say like a bodybuilder, you're going to see those very defined lat muscles coming out to the side. Now, these strong muscles not only help create sufficient core stability in torso stiffness, but also help maintain shoulder internal rotation to help keep the bar close to the body as the barbell is pulled from the floor. So it's very common to see lat dominance and over-facilitated lats in those who do a ton of pulling. So these are going to be a, specifically my powerlifters. I'm running into this a lot. Now, in order to move the barbell then overhead, you require enough flexibility in the lats in order for that arm to move. In order to keep the humerus in the center of the joint, remember the ball in the middle of the socket, as the arm moves overhead, the humerus must externally rotate. You have to have external rotation in your shoulder. However, if your lats are too stiff, the shoulder will be unable to achieve full external rotation, which could then lead to impingement, things smashing together. So those who have limited overhead mobility due to flexibility restrictions, yet continue to force their shoulder into poor positions when lifting, they end up with micro trauma at that shoulder, and eventually it just accumulates and leads to pain. So that's a second reason for shoulder impingement-like injuries due to imbalances. Now, proper coordination between the shoulder blade and the humerus is the third factor. It's a crucial factor in maintaining stability. So as we discussed prior, the shoulder blade must move in sync with the arm. If the shoulder blade is unable to rotate upwards enough when the arm is moving into an overhead position, let's say like when you're doing a jerk or a press, the ball of the humerus can shift excessively in the joint and again, smash things together. You can have that impingement. So a weak and poorly functioning serratus anterior muscle could be a cause for this because it could create poor scapular rotation. Now, impingement along with other serious injuries could be caused also by shoulder instability. This is more of a mechanical problem. Now, again, the term instability, just like impingement, it's fairly vague, in part because it's difficult to determine the amount of mobility an athlete 
presents with, is it normal or is it problematic? So just because someone has a lot of mobility, that doesn't mean that they're unstable. Now, athletes as a whole, especially when I look at a very good Olympic weightlifters, are very, very mobile. The best Olympic weightlifters are very mobile. Now, this hypermobility, it could be congenital or acquired. What does that mean? The term congenital means that they were born with it. Some athletes were just born with loose joints or loose connective tissue. Now, typically, these athletes do really well in gymnastics or dance or especially Olympic weightlifting when you have to be extremely mobile. I mean, if you see uh, sort of one of the lighter weight classes do a snatch and just sit in the bottom with a perfect technique, I mean, you have to be extremely mobile to get down there. On the opposite hand, you have acquired hypermobility, which usually happens over a long period of time. The small structures of the shoulder are sort of stretched or maybe even sort of torn loose due to repetitive microtrauma. I see this in the shoulder, especially with my baseball players who have you know, played baseball their entire life and they have a lot more mobility on one side than their other side. It's sort of something that acquired over time. They've become a little bit more hypermobile, but it's due to the, their sport and the different forces that are placed on them. It's not necessarily something they were born with. Now, either way, congenital or acquired hypermobility, it can lead to eventual injury if there are significant deficits in strength or stability. So hypermobility by itself isn't necessarily a bad thing. But if that mobility is not held up with enough strength or stability, problems can occur. Now, research has shown that anywhere from 5 to 15% of people are born with hypermobility. More often, it's females compared to males, but it can go either way. An easy way to assess whether or not you fall into that category is using the simple score. It's called the Byton Criteria Screen. Now, it's basically five screens, and you're going to grade yourself. For every screen, uh, except for the very last one, you're going to try it on both sides of your body, and you're going to give yourself a score of either one or zero if you can't perform the test. So total score is going to be zero to nine. So first one, you're going to grab your opposite hand, fifth finger, your little pinky finger, and you're going to pull it backwards as far as possible. Now, do it slowly. Don't crank on it. Can you move it backwards enough to where that joint is at 90 degrees? So basically, is your pinky finger pointed towards the ceiling now? I cannot do that at all. So I would get a score of zero. If you can, pull it back that far, and it's now your pinky finger is now looking like an L shape, and it doesn't hurt, that's a score of one. Okay, second one, grab your opposite hand thumb and pull it back towards your forearm. Can you touch your forearm without pain? To, or can you touch your thumb to your forearm without pain? I cannot. I get a score of zero. Straighten your elbow next as far as you can. Does it hyperextend? Now, if you uh, are generally looking at it, we're looking for hyperextension past 10 degrees, which is a good amount of hyperextension. But does your elbow hyperextend? Next, straighten your knee as much as you can. Does it hyperextend past 10 degrees? So does it have a good amount of hyperextension? And then the last one is you're going to bend over at your hips and you're going to try to touch the ground uh, without your knees bending at all. So straight leg, can you touch your hands to the ground? Can you basically rest your palms on the ground um, completely to the floor? Now, what did you find? I'll tell you what I found. Zero. I can't do any of these. <laughs> I'm not a very hypermobile person. That's just the way I was born. Now, research has shown, though, that those who have a score of two or more are more likely to be hypermobile and 2.5 times more likely to have an instability injury at the shoulder. 
So just take into account that hypermobility can lead to the potential of shoulder injury, again, if it's not supported. And again, here's the big thing to understand. Hypermobility is not inherently dangerous. There are plenty of athletes who have hypermobility, either congenital or acquired, who go through their entire careers without injury. But if the rotator cuff fails to control a hypermobile shoulder during a dynamic movement like a snatch, the shoulder can become unstable and injuries can eventually occur. So the, the ability to dynamically stabilize the shoulder is the difference between functional hypermobility and pathological instability. That's a big thing. I'm going to say that one more time. The ability to dynamically stabilize the shoulder is the difference between functional hypermobility or pathological instability. Pathological means we are going to eventually have injury. So how would instability lead to an injury when lifting weights? Crossfitters and weightlifters are very similar to baseball players and gymnasts in the sense that having the requisite amount of mobility is paramount to success. The repetitive nature of lifting weights overhead in this manner can place the shoulder at increased risk of injury, especially if instability is present. Now, while you likely won't see these traumatic dislocations occur during any of the movements that you're performing in the gym, like I said before, these tiny amounts of microtrauma are sustained at the shoulder if sufficient stability is lacking. Now, again, it's really hard to say for 100% certainty what type of injury could occur. You could, again, you could have like an impingement. You could have um, a tendinopathy occur. You could have a small labrum tear. It's hard to say exactly with each person, what specific structure, what tissue is going to be injured. But it's the idea as a whole of the movement problem is the why behind the problem occurring in the first place. So let's talk about the last area of how an injury would occur, and that is poor movement in technique. Now, it's of no surprise, or it shouldn't be of any surprise to you guys, if you have been following all the material that I put on Squat University for a while, that poor movement sets the basis for eventual injury. When you move poorly, especially under load, you increase your risk of injury. Now, if you're doing a bodyweight squat, and there's a couple times where your knee falls into valgus, it's probably not going to set you up for an injury like that. However, if you do the same thing with 100, 200 kilos on your back, a lot of weight, you're going to increase your risk for eventual injury because there's more load and it's being handled poorly. Now, the most common technique flaws that lead to shoulder pain when lifting occurs when the barbell is pushed or held, usually overhead. So we see a lot more shoulder injuries occur with the snatch, with pressing, with overhead squats. So let's quickly break down how this would occur. In order for the shoulder joint to remain safe during the snatch or an overhead squat, we ideally want to see the wrists, elbows, shoulders and shoulder blades, and the extended upper back, remember the thoracic spine, in this vertical stacked alignment. This is going to allow the barbell to be positioned directly over the back of the neck. Now with the barbell in this location, the shoulder muscles can work efficiently to stabilize the tremendous weight that you're trying to lift overhead. Now if all those factors are aligned properly, you should be able to sit down in the very bottom of that deep squat, and you should be able to press that bar vertically into that overhead position and back um, to the tops of your shoulders without any movement occurring, but only at your arms. So this is a great way when you are warming up 
before doing any snatches or overhead squats to just do some behind the neck presses. Now, some people, again, will call these a SOTS press. I think technically most people will claim that a SOTS press is from that front rack position. But again, the name is used interchangeably. It's semantics. Sit down in the bottom of a deep squat, arms in that snatch grip position, and just press that barbell directly overhead. Now, if you have sufficient positioning, all that is going to move is that barbell in a perfectly vertical position in that snatch grip position overhead, straight down to the tops of your traps. Nothing else will move. That is a big thing that I think a lot of people don't aren't basically don't have the ability to do that. When they sit down in that bottom snatch position, they go to press the barbell overhead. You're going to see a lot of forward and backward movements trying to stabilize the body or that barbell gets pushed backwards. It's not getting pressed perfectly vertical overhead. And then when you look at them from the side view, you'll see that maybe their trunk is leaning a good amount, like they're still doing a back squat. They're not perfectly vertical. So again, those things are going to usually accumulate with eventual injury if you're trying to move more and more weight. Now, in order to maintain stability with overhead lifts, the athlete's shoulder blades must be in proper position like we've talked about. Now, for most, this means that the scapulas need to be slightly retracted or pulled together um, in that good position, but not shrugged upwards, especially for Olympic lifters and crossfitters. Listen up to this next part. It is a common misconception that a lifter should shrug their shoulder blades upwards when the barbell is overhead. Now, some lifters will appear to have done so as they secure the barbell in that overhead position for two reasons. First, the shoulder blade naturally will have a good amount of upward rotation in order to provide stability for the humerus, the arm bone. And second, the upper traps are engaged. I don't mean they're not engaged. They are engaged to help provide tension for the arm as it supports the barbell overhead. The appearance of an upwardly rotated shoulder blade and an engaged upper trap to maintain that stability will give some the impression that the lifter is actively shrugging their shoulders upwards. However, this is often not the case with my elite athletes who are using great technique. Excessive upward rotation and shrugging of the shoulders will lead to early fatigue and uh, basically fatigue of the supporting musculature that stabilizes the joint. So simply put, overemphasizing shoulder shrugging is an inefficient approach to stabilizing the barbell overhead, whether you're doing a jerk or a snatch. Now, Olympian Chad Vaughn, I've had him on the show many times. I've been working with Chad often to create a lot of great Olympic lifting specific content for you guys on Instagram for the past couple of years. He has this awesome explanation for this concept by telling his athletes to envision doing a 100-meter overhead walking lunge with that barbell in that overhead position, whether you're doing a jerk or a snatch. Just put that barbell overhead. Think about you're going to be doing a 100-meter walking lunge. If the shoulders are shrugged upwards the whole time to support the barbell, think about how fatiguing that's going to get. Those upper trap muscles are surely going to fatigue well before you get to that 100-meter distance. Now, one thing that you can do the next time you do uh, do any jerks or snatches or overhead squats in your workout, if this is something that you struggle with, 
put that barbell overhead, get into that overhead position, and I want you to go into a bad position. I want you to excessively shrug, drive those upper traps up, get a feel for what that feels like because then I want you to do the opposite. I want you to pull that barbell back down slightly and feel for that stable stacked position overhead. So again, go into the bad position, feel what excessive shrugging feels like, and then learn how to set those shoulder blades back down just a little bit. We're not pulling them too far down because then that's completely unstable, but pull them back down a little bit more into an overhead stable stacked position. That'll help you get a feel for the position you need to end up in with your lifts. Now, a good corrective exercise you can use just to help set this in and solidify it is just some overhead single arm carries. I like using a kettlebell or a dumbbell and just working on solidifying that stable stacked position um, and working on just getting used to having that barbell overhead or the dumbbell overhead and just walking with it down and back. That can be a very helpful corrective exercise if this is something that you struggle with. So that is one of the first technique flaws that can eventually lead to issues overhead creating shoulder pain. A second common one is the inability to maintain good shoulder position in relation to excessive external or internal shoulder um, rotation. Now, poor technique, especially when we're doing our overhead lifting, can shift the shoulder into excessive rotation in order to keep the body in balance. Sometimes you'll see excessive internal rotation or excessive external rotation. As you put your arm overhead, as you raise your arm overhead, no matter what type of movement you are doing, your shoulder joint moves into slight external rotation to keep the ball centered on the tee. I can't tell you the amount of times I have heard someone say, well, the Chinese coaches preach this or Chinese weightlifting preaches this. I don't care what the Chinese weightlifting manual says. If you move your arm overhead in order to keep your arm in a neutral position, your shoulder joint externally rotates. It has to in order for the shoulder joint to remain in the center, to keep the ball in the center of T. Your shoulder joint, it has to externally rotate. Now from there, we want to limit excessive internal or excessive external rotation in that position, okay? If an athlete, let's say, drops their chest forward during an overhead squat or in the receiving position of a snatch, the arms are going to do what? They're going to reflexively move further behind the body in order to keep the barbell balanced and the person from dropping the lift. Now, this exaggerated position is going to place a ton of external rotation on that shoulder and shift the humerus forward in the joint. So lifting weights in an extended external rotated position is going to put uh, a lot of uneven forces on the joint because you're out of that ideal stacked alignment. Eventually, you're going to get tiny amounts of microtrauma, microtrauma, I can't speak right now, on the small structures of the shoulder, which can eventually lead to pain. So again, I get a lot of people to ask me this question about the cue to internally rotate the shoulder in the overhead position, especially with a snatch. And I think it's a common misunderstanding of shoulder mechanics. I believe the problem really lies in the appearance that some athletes give as they squeeze their shoulder blades together and push their armpits forward with the barbell overhead. That's the movement of scapular retraction. While this may appear like the shoulder is moving into internal rotation, the humerus itself is remaining externally rotated in order for the middle of the shoulder to stay in the shoulder blade socket. Um, even, you know, I've seen some elite weightlifters, um, Alexi Torikiti is one, 
and he'll preach shoulder internal rotation with snatch grip uh, presses or with a snatch. And while he does go into a little bit of internal rotation with light weights, if you actually watch and break down his heavy lifts, his shoulder is an external rotation. It's the exact same setup as everyone else when he's receiving a heavy snatch. And if you go on my YouTube, I did a breakdown of shoulder external versus internal rotation, this entire discussion, with some actual analysis of Chinese lifters, of Alexi, and you're going to just notice all the weightlifters are basically doing the exact same thing. There's slight external rotation, the armpits are forward, elbow joint is underneath the body. They're not in excessive internal, they're not in excessive external rotation. So regardless of what cues your coach may give, the basic criteria for maintaining upper body in a balanced, stacked alignment must be met in order for the shoulder to remain safe when lifting overhead. There's always going to be this little variation in how the overhead position looks from athlete to athlete due to their anatomy. You know, are they hypermobile? Do they have a longer humerus compared to their torso length? You know, there's always going to be these small variations that are going to make things look a little bit different. But the foundation for safety and stability when lifting is something that we all must adhere to if we want to keep the shoulder safe in the long run. So that is going to be it for today's podcast. We've covered a number of things. We covered the anatomy of the shoulder joint, a little bit more of the mechanics about how you need to have a mobile thoracic spine, a shoulder blade that's mobile enough to move into the right position, but it's got to be stable so that it can be in the correct position for the rotator cuff muscles to then create that compression, create that stability for the arm bone, for the ball to stay in the socket, so you can have all these forces working in harmony for good quality movement and safe, efficient movement. We've talked about the different um, types of injuries that can occur. We can have imbalances. We can have instabilities. We can have poor movement. There's a number of different factors. And the big takeaway that I want you to get is that if someone has a shoulder injury, it is often not the exact same reason someone else may have a shoulder injury. You have to always find the why behind why someone is having pain. Because the shoulder is such a complex joint, complex You know, there's so many different factors that we need to understand and analyze whenever we're understanding either A, how we're improving technique, or B, how we're addressing pain and injury. So again, that is going to be it for today's podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. It's a little bit more in-depth than some of the other ones that we've done. If you did enjoy it, hit me up. Uh, on Twitter at Squat University. Let me know how you liked it. If there's something that you want to learn about in future episodes, um, take a screenshot of this podcast, share it across social media, tag me on Instagram stories so I can reach out to you and say thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for listening to the podcast. I really appreciate it. It means so much that you would listen to this podcast on whatever you're doing, taking the dog for a walk, getting ready to work out, driving to and from work. I hope the information, the content that I'm delivering in this podcast could be valuable for you and help empower you to understand your body a little bit better and maybe even help someone else that has questions, um, especially on today's topic on the shoulder. So again, Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. And until next week, guys, happy squatting. That's it for today, class, on Squat University by Dr. Aaron Horshig. For more exclusive content, log on to squatuniversity.com.